And I am speaking to the choir today, this morning. We have many people in our church who have adopted, and we have many people in our church who are already about this ministry. Um, I had a, uh, when we were first considering as a, as a session, as an elder board, this kind of emphasis as a church, I was beginning to think about this initiative, and so invited a number of people in our church who had adopted or done foster care, and I invited about, I think about 12 families and this has never happened to me as a pastor. All 12 families said yes to coming to an informational and just kind of a gathering. 100% participation. That's the kind of church that we have. It's one of the reasons why I love this church. We had Today we are having a foster care awareness lunch. We have 70 people signed up for that lunch. That's about a third of who's here this morning or a quarter. So we have a church. This is preaching to the choir. But for even those of us who are involved already in foster care, we're already involved in orphan care and adoption, we desperately need to hear the theology of adoption. Because when you're in it, not only do you, does the Bible speak to what should compel you, but the very same biblical foundations and principles that compel you to adopt are the very principles that sustain you in that ministry. Listen, sad pictures of little children will not sustain you when you get into it. Your gifting as a parent will not sustain you. You will be done rather rapidly if it's about your strength. It's about your ability to conjure up emotions and romanticize this aspect of what God has called us to do. And so I want to be very explicitly today call us to compel you, for those of you that may not be involved, and motivate and help give you truths that would sustain you for those of you that are already involved in this type of ministry. So I'm going to give you three truths today. And these truths are not about sad pictures and a bunch of stats, although I will give some stats. Ultimately, what compels you and what motivates you and what sustains you in this labor is a worship of God. Out of the overflow of the hearts, we sing and we worship. Out of the overflow of the hearts, you parents. Out of the overflow of the hearts, you care for the orphan so we want to look at God and his value for the orphan this morning. Our three points for you this morning. First is this, God values image bearers. God values his image bearers. We talked about this briefly last week when I brought up the idea of Jonah. And what the book of Jonah is about is actually it's slamming the people of Israel for the fact that they care more for themselves than they actually care for a dying and broken world's. I remember they gave you that scene last week where Jonah is very ticked off that God had taken away his wonderful vine that he loved so dearly and he cherished for that whole 12 hours that he had it. And God goes, listen, if you will get this angry about losing a vine, how much more should I care about the 120,000 people who are my image bearers, who I created, who I knit in their mother's womb, I should care for them. People are valuable in God's sight. In fact, people are the most valuable of all of God's creation. This is a biblical foundation that has driven ministry for the least and the lost throughout Christian history. It is what has driven those that have the Christian and biblical foundations for the civil rights movement. This is actually what they went to. Let me read you something that Martin Luther King said in one of his sermons. He said this, you see the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, Imago Dei is the Latin term for image of God. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but every, that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness 
There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. We are all made in the image of God, whether you have a developmental disorder, whether you are impoverished, whether you were born in Western Europe or America or from the sub-Saharan deserts, you are an image bearer. And all people in this world are image bearers. We are referred to as the Imago Dei. Martin Luther King also chided and often used the illustration of a Baptist church in his area that would send thousands of dollars in order to evangelize Africans in Africa would fire their pastor because he let a black person sing in their choir. We believe in the doctrine of the image of God, but do we live it out? Are we consistent with it? This is the call. What sort of human being is valuable in God's sight? The answer is all human beings. But guess what? Not everyone agrees with this. In fact, this is a significant... Normally, I'm saying, listen, let's talk about us and our problems, but I would say there's a pervasive issue with our culture on this matter. And perhaps it has infiltrated our church culture as well, but we have a, a culture in the Western world that does not value life anywhere close to the way that God values life. John Stott said this, have we ever considered the unique value and dignity of human beings made in the image of God? And he goes on to say this, so that abuse torture, rape, grinding poverty, which dehumanize human beings are also an insult to the God who made them. In other words, when we do to God's image bears, we, when we do terrible things or we don't care about their plight, we are insulting the maker of those image bears. And Christianity, from all throughout the scriptures and all throughout its history, where it has been most um, consistent with the gospel, has stood up and cared for these things. Pharaoh was killing innocent children, and who was lauded in Israel? The woman who said, we will stand up for life. God's people have always stepped forward and said, we will value human beings. And not just some. There are times when we've been inconsistent on this. The statement is this, is to value human beings from the womb to the tomb. So in what ways are we following the culture at large today. You know, one of the ways in which, because the church loves to be relevant, one of the ways we eschew previous generations and we push them to the side rather rapidly. Why? Because we're following our culture. The sinfulness of our culture that says, yes, why don't you go stay in that, that whitewashed facility over there and we never want to see you again. Because you've reached the age in which you don't really have anything to offer anymore. Our culture says the value of your life is dependent on your beauty, your utility. If you don't have those things, then you are not valuable. Proverbs makes the connection. The way you view people should determine how you treat them, though. And if you view people as not being made by God, as not being image bearers, then you will, you will not treat them as image bearers. And you will, in the end, insult their maker. People are significant. They have purpose. Why? Because we get stuff done? Because we're intelligent? No, we have purpose because God, at the beginning, at the foundations of the earth, looked at you and said, you are very good. That is an image bearer. An image bearer. Do we view people based on our cultural system of work? The culture said infants are blobs. 
People's worth is based on their utility and the old are a drag. For too long, the church's standpoint has been God helps those who help themselves. That's a utilitarian perspective on how we care for people, and that is an anti-gospel. For too long, the church has been inconsistent. And yes, I would say there is a call for this, and I was saying this a couple weeks ago, while there may be some in, in this, and I would say the popular culture of Christianity is to say, let's care across racial lines, and that has been a problem in America's past. We ought to care from the womb to the tomb. But does my generation speak up for the unborn? Does an older generation care about reaching across racial lines? Yes, once again. Yes, once again. Yes, I know you've been yelled at and fussed at for the entirety of your life. That as a white person, it's your fault and your problem. That's how you feel, right? That's why we get angry. No, but what we care about, if we are consistent with our view of the image of God, we will care about all those from the womb to the tomb. And we need to hear this and in, in to in compel us that not only other people are image bearers, but we are image bearers. You understand when God draws you back to himself, one of the things that's being communicated a lot now is understanding poverty and what people desperately need when, when they're drawn out of poverty is not simply to be given a handout, that to be restored to having jobs and having significance. You know why that is? It's restoring their dignity as an image bearer. Because God designed you to have purpose. You were not designed to sit on a couch and be a lazy blob. You were not designed simply to have things handed to you. You were designed to work. When God said, when he gave us the cultural mandate, he said, in my, as reflect me, be fruitful and multiply, care for the world and shepherd it. And therefore, we should give people things to do. And we simply say, no, 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 no. That's too difficult for you to do. Let's let somebody else who's more efficient at that do it. Listen, we got to give people dignity. Part of understanding your image bearing is that God is restoring you to a life of purpose. And this is part of the call to be engaged with the orphan care and adoption care. It's because God has given you a purpose and it is significant. It is the shepherding care for the world and care for other image bearers. That's the first biblical foundation, that God cares for his image bearers. Second, that God fathers the fatherless. I try, to, I try to draw you to the fatherhood of God every couple weeks. So that hopefully this will be nothing new to you if you've been here for very long. But did you know that God, the name that he most prefers for himself is Father? It's Father. Psalm 68 verses 5 and 6 says this. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. I want to see three things about what God does in his activities to become the father to the fatherless. First, God sees the terrible situations of the orphan. God sees. The scriptures actually give us a pretty clear view of the terrible plight and situation of orphans in this world. Orphans in the Old Testament and ancient times, just as they are now, were social misfits. They were helpless members of society. They lacked material needs, and they were victims of horrendous abuse. And oddly enough, it's interesting, the place where we get the best picture, where we get the best understanding of what it was like to be an orphan in the ancient world is from the book of Job. 
Because Job, when he's making his case before God, when he's saying, God, why have you brought these terrible things upon me? Job's, Job's saying, I have been faithful and consistent. I've cared for widows, and I've cared for sojourners, and I've cared for orphans. And in talking about that, he describes the plight of orphans. For example, let me, let me just run through and rattle through a few verses from Job. Job 24.9 says he, that I have, they have often been kidnapped and sold, and so he tries to take care of them. They were orphans in that day, Job 29, 12, they were helpless. Job 31 talks about how they suffered hunger and abandonment. Job 22, 9 says they were victims of violence, that they were crushed. Very often back in the ancient world, their, their lives are treated as mere property by which others gambled for and sold left and right. Often victims of injustice, they, they were victims of injustice, including murder that was not prosecuted. They were not represented in court, it says in Job 31. They were often the people most often found begging for foods. And we would like to think that that is the case in an ancient world, but that is the case today. The case today is God sees the vulnerable plights of the orphan. At any given time in the United States of America, there are over 400,000 children in the foster care system in our country. 115,000 estimated, give or take. Obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a moving scale at all times. But there are usually about 115,000 kids within that system who are available to be adopted. Every year, 30,000 children in the United States phase out of the foster care system. And normally, in most states, what they are given is they are given $500 and they are sent on their way. 18 years old, here's 500 bucks, no family, enjoy the rest of your life. As the plight of the orphan, that's just our country, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. What about other places? Well, in places like Ukraine, the statistics about the trajectory of children coming out of foster care and orphanages becomes all to more, the more staggering. In Ukraine, some 80, 70 to 80 percent of the girls that come out of the orphanages end up in sex trafficking, 70 to 80 percent. 80 to 90 percent of the young men who leave the orphanages are involved in lives of crime. All worldwide, there are over 140 million orphans in our world. If we gather them all together and made them into their own country, it would be the seventh largest country in the world. And yet they are not seen. Similar to the unborn, they are a voiceless, a voiceless nation that cries out. But we don't hear them so often. You don't see them on the evening news. In fact, many of us, we could go our whole life unless you actively sought to engage with the orphan and you never meet one or know you were meeting one. They're unseen. But the beautiful truth of the Old Testament and the New Testament is God sees. God sees. In fact, it's one of the names. There's a, there's a, a, a young woman in the Old Testament in Genesis who essentially becomes a widow. She gets sent away from the man who impregnated her. And she essentially has a fatherless child. That woman's name is Hagar, and her son's name is Ishmael. Abraham, in his sin, committed adultery with Hagar and then sent her away. But what she named Ishmael is based on the Hebrew word for God that God sees, El-Roi, your God sees. And what we find is the testimony of Hagar is that when she is sent away, she and her husband are dying, of, her husband, her child are dying in the desert of thirst. But God sees and he provides. God sees, God sees. When God talks about his own covenant people, the people of Israel, when they were enslaved in Egypt, 
Moses, remember Moses at the burning bush, and the people of Israel have been crying out from under the, the weight of their enslavement, and he comes to Abraham and he says, I have heard and I have seen the plight of my people. God sees. God sees. And God seeks justice. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says this, that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. God sees the, the plight of the, inf, of the orphan and the the one who desperately needs to be adopted in this world, the fatherless of this world. But God doesn't just see, he sends. God sends, and who does he send? We'll get to him. He sends you. He sends his church. God's plan, practically speaking, his hands and his feet has been his people. So much so, so much did he care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner that he wrote it into the law that we are to be a people who cared for the orphan. Exodus 22, this is Exodus 22 from after Exodus 20, right? We have the big 10, the 10 commandments. And then what we see in the re- much of the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy is we see an exposition of how to apply the 10 commandments within national life and um, uh, ceremonial life within the temple, but also it's just simply morally what it looks like to apply the 10 commandments. And in Exodus 22, he calls Israel and says, you shall not mistreat the orphan. You shall seek justice for them. God says this, he goes so far to say this, that if you don't listen to the cry of the orphan, I will not listen to your prayers. You must listen to the cries of the orphan, hear them. The orphan was provided for. It's interesting, he had, there's all these various specific laws about how you're supposed to glean your fields. Remember this with the story of Ruth and Boaz? The wealthy landowners were only to glean some portion of their field, and they were to leave essentially the round. They were, they were to kind of create a crop circles and leave, instead of having the squares, to kind of leave the, the outer areas of the square to leave the sheaves of the wheat and the various fields for the impoverished, for the orphan and the widow to come and, and provide food for themselves. Part of the welfare system of Israel this goes on not only in the Old Testament, but also this theme of caring for the orphan is carried on in the New Testament as well. You know, one of the areas and one of the ways you're called, one of the characteristics that has to be evident in someone who's going to be an elder or a deacon in God's church is they have to perform hospitality. Now, way too often in our overly foodie cultures, what that, we think that means is we, have a, we, we, uh, we all get together and watch the Super Bowl. Or we all get together and have a wine party. Now listen, that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. But that is not the hospitality that it's talking about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hospitality is to care for widows and orphans, to invite those who are impoverished and broken, who are traveling through your country, and invite them into your home. To the point where it burdens you to some degree. You know what adoption is? It's long-term Hospitality. That's what foster care is. It's hospitality. It's carrying out this characteristic that we are called to live into. Luke 14, 12 and following talks about this. It talks about this, this. Jesus calls us to invite not the wealthy and the rich and the people we already know to our dinner tables, but to invite, it says, the, the poor, the crippled, and the blind. Why? Because they can't pay you back. It says, because they can't pay you back, you'll repay to the resurrection of the just. You know what? If you get involved in foster care ministry, you probably won't be thanked. And you, I mean, and it could be really difficult. And there's a, and not only will you not probably not be thanked by the child, you almost definitely will not be thanked by the system. The system, like almost everything the governments get involved in, is broken. 
It is broken, it is large, and they don't know how to handle it. There's not enough funds, and so you're going to get fussed at and yelled at, and it's not going to serve you. But God says your thanks is found at the resurrection of the just. Some days all you'll have is that promise because you won't get any thanks. It'll be frustrating. It'll be hard. It'll be tired. You've got to get rid of your romantic notions of what adoption and foster care look like. You know, we, we play these videos, and we, we're, we do it here, and it comes with this really great music, doesn't it? It just moves you, but it builds, and you find your heart just all aflutter by the end of these videos. That is not the right music. The right music for when, when, when encountering adoption care and foster care, it should be a military march. Because this kind of care is warfare. It is not romantic. When you want to, when you want to quit, I've heard one pastor say this. He wanted to quit when he was, after he'd adopted some kids and he just wanted to punch them in the neck. <laughs> what you have to remember is the call that parenting and orphan care and adoption, foster care is warfare. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy. Third, God is the father of the fatherless, so he sees, so he sends his church, but ultimately he saves the orphan. This is important for us to understand and know. While God calls you and me, God calls his church, he calls his people, he includes as a part of his care to plant, to care for, and to provide for the orphan, we must remember that God has not called us to save orphans. He has not called us to save. We must be careful in our discussions of this this activity of, of any act of applying the work of God and the adoption of God, not to take on the role only God has given to himself. Listen, there is one Savior out there, and you are not it. And there are two problems as we're learning and developing in this area as a church worldwide, that this, if you go into this trying to save children, you are in for a rocky road. Because you can't, you can't save your biological kids you can't save adopted kids, and you can't save foster care children. You don't have that power. And the other, the other issue, if you go in with a Messiah complex, it's going to crush you. If you go in with the need to prove yourself and to save your own self, it will crush you as well. Because like me, what you'll find is you're a worse sinner than you thought. You're a worse sinner than you thought. So while God sends us, ultimately, though, he sends his son. God saves orphans. And he proves it by sending his only son to redeem orphans out of a broken world and bring them into his kingdom, into his house, into his family. And here it is that I want to find you to find and see the heart of what compels us to adopt. There's a, um, much of what I'm saying today comes from two particular books and two particular speakers on adoption. One is, many of you are familiar with a guy named Russell Moore. He wrote a book called Adopted for Life. There's another guy named Tony Morita who's very um, cogent on this issue as well, and much of his thoughts and his structure on how to communicate on orphan care I've taken from in preparing for this. But he and his wife, when they were asked about, when they, they adopted four children from Ukraine all at once, four siblings, and they were asked why. He said the, the answer wasn't that they were struggling with infertility. That's what people assumed. He said, no, we were motivated by theology, not biology. We were motivated by theology, not biology. You see, you have to understand the gospel story is an adoption story. And it's not the adoption story of simply those who are orphaned in this world. It is the story of your becoming adopted by the Father in heaven. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to there. I want to walk through this for a little bit. Let me read this passage. 
And Paul is articulating a pretty crunchy gospel. But it says this, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I want you to see a couple things here about your adoption story that would compel you to adopt, perhaps to get involved in adoption care in some way, shape, or form, and sustain you. First, you need to remember that God planned your adoption. It wasn't an accident. Galatians 4, 4 says this, In the fullness of time, God sent his son. That means God was planning when he was going to send his son. He said, this moment, this time in history, right now is when I'll send my son to reveal the mystery of my salvation. It says it even more clearly in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It goes on and says this, In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption. What you need to understand about adoption is it has never been plan B in God's salvation plan. It's always been plan A. In the eternal counsels of God's will, he planned to adopt you. That is good news. It is not a whim. It is not based on your beauty. It is based on his plan for you. Second, you also see that in your adoption story, God saw how terrible your plight was. He saw the reality is this, is we often talk about us all being children of God. That's how the world would like us to talk. It would get rid of, we're all just God's children. And there is a sense in that God is our creator. Yes, so God is your father and that he has created you. But the story of the Bible was this, is that we are, while we are created by God, we are relationally orphaned from God. And unlike most of the world, where the, child, where the father and the mother reject a child or cannot care for a child because of their social standing or place in society or particular issues in their life. In this case, we are the ones who rejected the father. We ran away from dad. We lost fellowship with him. And we enslaved ourselves to sin, it says. What does it say there? To redeem us from under the law. We had sold ourselves to some other forms It's gone from slaves to son is the call of adoption. That's what God does for us in our redemption, is he takes us from being enslaved to a law that we could not keep, enslaved to a world that was abusing us and brought us in as sons and daughters. This is the gospel. Your orphan, your adoption story is that you were once a slave to sin, and now you've been brought in as a son of God's. Tony Marita talks about another one of the stories from his life. His own sister had adopted. She would adopted five children. And one of them was from Ethiopia, a little girl who had HIV. And the way it works is you get matched. And so she, they knew going in that they were going to be getting a little girl with HIV. And her friends were kind of going, listen, the adoption thing, that's one thing. But to bring a child into your family with HIV, that's entirely another. And they were asking, how in the world could you do this? And they were going, and she said, well, yes, of course I can do this. They say, how come? And she says, because God adopted me when I had something far worse than HIV. When I was enslaved to sin, a poison that was destroying my life and destroying the lives of those around me. So yes, she could bring someone in with a physical disease. She could bring in someone with mental development issues. 
Why? Because that's what God did for you. Third, you've got to see in your adoption story that God sent the Son. God sent His Son. It wasn't anybody who came and adopted us, right? It took somebody special. It took somebody special, somebody unique. God sent forth His Son, born of woman. It's interesting here. Within this theology of adoption, Paul just wheels in there the theology of Jesus' natures, His two natures. You see, you know who was special? It took someone who was divine and who was human to come save us, to come bring us home. It's called the hypostatic union, that within one person, there was one God. There was God. He was divine, fully God, and fully human. You see, God sent forth his son. God's son. He's fully divine. But he also was born of woman. He's fully human. And only Jesus, this is why when we say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we're not just trying to be jerks and be narrow-minded. Because there was only one who could adopt us, and it was the one who was the one who was fully God and fully man. He was the unique one who could pay the cost for our adoption. That was Jesus Christ. Fourth, you've got to see that not only was it the Son sent, but the Son paid the cost of your adoption. Listen, if you've got involved in adoption, you know that it's costly, very costly. If you adopt overseas, you're looking at somewhere in the realm of $40,000 plus to adopt a child. It's costly. It's costly to do a domestic adoption. But let me tell you, Tony Marita said this. I think this was so wise. He said this. What he likes to tell young couples who are considering adoption and who are fretting about the financial cost, he said, oh, oh, the financial cost, that's no problem at all. You have much bigger problems. You see, when you're going to adopt, you're going to do foster care, what it actually costs is you to flip your life upside down. It means that your life is going to have to take a trajectory change. It means you're going to have to move outside of a safe bubble. Financial expenses are the least of your worries. There's money out there. You can get money. We live in America. You can get money. It's whether you're, rather to re, re, you're willing to reorient your life. Jesus says, take up a cross and follow me. That's not like, well, if it's convenient. No, it's a reorientation of one's life. But that's the beautiful thing about our adoption in Christ Jesus. You know what you should tell people? I'm not made of junk because I'm an image bearer of God, and God has proved it because he paid very much for me. See, he spilt his son's blood to buy you back. The terminology is he redeemed you from under the law. He purchased you. He ransomed you to make you his. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law. We were being crushed by it. But you know, Jesus came, the the cost that he spent for us was he came and lived the perfect life for us. And then he died the death that you and I had to live, had to die. You see, he lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we couldn't die. He paid the cost so that we may be brought into the household of God. You understand the power of your own adoption. You've been brought into the family of God. He is the father of the fatherless. And he has proved it beautifully in the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring you in. One final point this morning. I want, we've seen that God values image bearers. God cares for, he loves, and yes, he saves the fatherless. He saves orphans like, orphans like you and me. But finally, I want you to see the extent of the blessing of God's adoption for us. You see, God does not just provide us hell insurance, does he? His salvation does not just provide you a, a roof over your head and some food. And that's not what adoption is. That's not what good adoption is or good foster care. 
Adoption is more than simply getting a roof over kids' heads. This is not just giant social work that we're after. We're after something far more. We're after something that is holistic. And God is holistic when he adopts us. And I would call us to be engaged. As we do orphan care as a church, we ought to be holistic as well. Just as an aside, it's interesting, you know, in the social media world in the last couple weeks, in all these passages of the Old Testament, almost all of them, it's interesting, it connects three groups of people that the people of Israel to care for. Widows, orphans, and what's the third group? Sojourners. Or in the terminology of our last couple of weeks is refugees. Now listen, I'm not making any social or political commentary on how a government has a right to protect its citizens. But Christians also have the command to care for refugees. And I don't know how we work those things out as voting people who have stewardship in this country. We got to do some due diligence. But it's interesting, in one of the videos that I've seen the last couple of weeks, and it, 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 was, it, was, it was quite interesting, you may have seen it, it was the video of the guy who has the gumballs. It's showing about how if we take, you know, 100,000 refugees and how much of it deals with the problem. What he's articulating in that is not that we shouldn't take refugees, because the same could be said about orphan care. Well, what's the point of taking that one gumball of a child and bringing them into your home? Look at the big problem we still have. Yes, that's true, you, but you still have to do something. But it means this, in doing holistic orphan care in this world, is we cannot simply just care for the orphans and those who are in foster care. We must care for the systemic issues that are causing there to be orphans in this world. In fact, there are those who are gifted and called, who have the financial resources and the business savvy and the economic understanding as to how to develop countries that need to be involved to lay their life down instead of making a bunch of money for themselves that would get involved in the kind of initiatives in the third world that would say, I want to engage in how we change the economies of countries so that there aren't as many refugees and there aren't as many widows and there aren't as many orphans. That's holistic care. And so it can't be simply that we care for orphans and we adopt. It's broader than that. You need to read the book, When Helping Hurts. It's actually written by a guy in our denomination. He was up at Covenant College, and he was studying this issue as how how do we Christians, for years what we have done is we've done poverty relief in a way that actually hurts developing countries. That actually what we need to do in order to actually encourage people's development of dignity is we need to go into places and help them develop economies. Not give them our used shoes and used shirts. Not send them the Super Bowl t-shirts that say, This team won when they didn't win. That's not actually helping those countries. We need to find better ways to do it. So that's holistic care, but I digress. I want you to see that when God brings us into his family, when God adopts, it is not simply to provide you the bare necessities. He does so much more. He blesses us abundantly. When God adopts us, he brings you into a cornucopia of the blessing of being his child. You know, Paul in Galatians 4, when he uses the word adoption, he only uses it in three books. Galatians Ephesians and Romans. In these three books, and almost in all, in all three of these books, he's writing to a, to a culture that is pretty much Roman. And it's an in, in, odd thing about Roman culture is that adoption was a critical part of their culture, in particular for the wealthy. Did you know that like many, a number of Caesars adopted older sons? If you saw this in this movie, if you ever remember Ben-Hur, he is adopted as a son later on in life. In fact, Julius Caesar, who's mentioned in Luke 2, is known for having adopted a son in later life a man named Octavian. Now, that would be quite the life shift, wouldn't it? it? If you're an orphan in Rome and suddenly you get adopted by Caesar, now that's some sweet blessings to come into. But what Paul is saying is this. You think being adopted by Caesar would be good. You've been adopted by the creator 
of all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who owns heaven and earth. And when you come into God's family, you get unbelievable blessings. I'm going to give you five this morning. Five blessings that adopted children should get in this world and that God gives to us. First, you get a restored identity. You get a restored identity. Or a new status could be another way of saying it. My wife and I adopted a little boy a couple years ago. And there's a certain point when lawfully he became ours. He lived in our home from the time he was born pretty much. And so not until he was six or seven months old was he officially ours. And that official time happened when a judge declared it to be so. Do you understand objectively when God adopts you, there is a gavel that falls in heaven that says, boom, my child, my child. And do you think when you are God's child, he will let anybody take you from him? You have an immediate new status and new identity. You're a child of God. You get a name change. You get a home change. You get a language change. This is the new identity that we get. A new status. That's the first thing, first blessing. Second, you get intimacy with the Father. Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's interesting. My son, Drew, has never seen legal paperwork that tells him that, that I'm his father. How does he know that I'm his dad? Because he calls me daddy. That's why. Because I sit with him in a rocking chair and I hold him. That's why. Because I feed him and I wipe his tears and other things. That's why. (laughs) That's why he knows he's my son. You see what it's talking about here with the cry of Abba, Father. It's talking about the experience of your sonship. There is, a, there is an objective reality, and often you will, you will long, you will like, God, I, I'm not experiencing your closeness. That's a part of the Christian, Christian life. And you're crying out, God, I, I long to feel you and sense your presence of my Father. And in that moment, we have to go back to the declarative statement that says, you are my son. But we should long as Christians, and what the Spirit provides for us is, yes, an intimate experience that God is our Father. There's a... Puritan example of this, I think with a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin, who gives the account of watching a man and his son. And they were walking in front of him kind of from a distance. And he, he assumed that they were son and father and son. But he said he didn't realize it and actually know for sure until he saw the father stoop down and pick up the son and hug the son. Listen, that's what the Spirit does for us. He comes into our hearts and he allows us to cry out. The Spirit helps us experience our sonship, crying out, Abba, Father, within us. He bears witness that you indeed, so you can sense it, so you can feel it, that you are indeed children of God. So do you know that we get to call on God in prayer? We get to say, Abba, Father. That is the word. Of, in other words, that's the very intimate word of Daddy. Daddy. We get to speak and commune with the Father. And why do we get to do that? You know, Abba is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark 14 when he throws himself before the Father and he pleads, take this cup from me. Abba, Abba did not respond. Why? So that you and I could be ushered in so that we might have the opportunity to cry Abba. You know, it's such a blessing to be able to cry out to God. We take it for granted. We come into his presence 
Also, Moore talks about being in, in an orphanage in Ukraine. He said one of the, you'd expect to hear a ton of noise. But if you go into an orphanage, many of them, it's dead silent. You know why? Because no one responds to the baby's cries. That's life without God. But when God becomes your father, he comes running when he hears your cry. He is pleased with us and he comes to us and he says, I am your father and you are my son in whom I am well pleased. So that's another blessing. Third blessing, you get a new family. That's what we are as a church. Listen, we call it family identities for a reason. People, we call this church family. We have something in our services called family time. Because we want to drive home to us all the time as a church that this is who we are. And as a family, it's interesting, it's so wonderful that when we come into the family of God, we come into a family that is transracial, transethnic, translingual. It is a beautiful thing, the family of God. It's called his kingdom. It's interesting, my wife, I think somebody was asking or talking to her about the issue of why we were seeking or, or willing to do transracial adoption. And understand this, there are particular challenges that come with transracial adoption. And they are not just for you, they are for your child. You understand that at least, at least by social and psychological terms, it would be better for my child to be with an African-American family. It would. To help him understand his identity and his history, but that's not God's story that God is writing. And so why would we enter into that challenge? Why would we enter into that? My wife said this. I, she was bringing back her seminary days, I think. She said this because this is what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God looks like a transracial, transethnic, translingual family. that call comes in and all calls God Father. That all communes with one spirit. And we are blessed with a family. It's interesting, we were meeting with some neighbors and having dinner with them a couple weeks ago. Um, neighbors who, they, they, don't, they, have no, they have no reason, at least in earthly mind thinking, to, that they would, you would sense that they would need God. This particular neighbor, uh, she's beautiful, she's successful, she's wealthy, and yet we were kind of sharing about life. You know, it's always odd when you get together with people and like, how do I engage with people socially? Like, they're talking about their jobs and I talk about mine to a non-believer and they're like, yeah, I'm talking about church stuff. Like, like they have any, but we were talking about life in the church and how we have, it's so great that our kids get to be raised around people coming in and out of our, out of our home, that we get to, they get to be around college students, around people in ministry and those who are hurting. And this is awesome to be a part of this broader family. And if we could tell that in that moment, her eyes lit up. See, it was clear that what she longed for, and she even stated that, man, that's what children need, is a family, a community of people. And that's what God calls us into. What a sweet blessing to be a part of God's church. Fourth blessing is, I said a new lifestyle. I don't like that. I don't know, new man. I don't know what to say, but God makes you into a new man. He sanctifies you if you want to lose, use theological terminology. The work of God, when you get adopted into his family, is just getting started. When the Spirit of God comes into our lives, the work is just getting started. His transformational work. And when you bring a child into your home, they are not immediately, they don't look like you, talk like you, live like your values. It takes time, particularly if you're, the older you adopt or bring children in in regards to foster care. But we are more and more, what we are becoming like is like our older brother Jesus. Actually, Paul says this in Galatians 4.19, My little children, I am in anguish of childbirth until Jesus is formed in you. Our spiritual adoption is a blessing because God then begins the work of transforming us to look like Jesus. With our adoption comes new desires, new appetites, new affections. 
new things that you long for. Tony Mira to t- tell us this great story that I think some of you will get a kick out of. He, he had, they, they not only did they adopt from uh, Ukraine four children, but later on they adopted a little child from Ethiopia. And he was about six or seven years old when they brought him home. And about the second day, they had this rule that in their house, you have to eat all the food on your plate no matter what you're served. And so his, um, this child they brought from Ethiopia, can understand that there's some cultural changes in what you're eating, but he, he comes in and he sits down for dinner the second night. He's home there and he's trying to help him understand that this is what we're eating tonight. And he sees that on his plate is spinach salads. And he's so offended by this that he gets up and walks out the room. It's not like he just eats around it. He's like, I'm done with this. So they bring him back in and they sit him down. And, they, and Tony thought he was really funny because he said, as a child, my mom told me, that I should eat my greens, because why? There's starving children in Africa. And he thought it was kind of ironic that a kid who grew up in a straw hut still wouldn't eat spinach. <laughs> Listen, my son, my son, it's clear that we think his mom only ate McDonald's for nine months. My, my wife, when she was pregnant with our first child, uh, ate at a, she worked at a, like a high-end uh, food and wine bar and so ate really high on the hog. They would just give her food. I mean, I don't know, eat, eat more. And so Lila came, like, came out of the wound wanting like, you know, like, you know, a smoothie. And, and, but, but Drew, he's come out, he, what he Drew wants is he wants a French fry. Always, always a French fry. And we're trying, our biggest fight with Drew is his eating habits. Listen, God's, God's got much bigger fights with you though. Your habits, you bring in some terrible habits into the family of God, into God's, God's household, but God's going to weed them out. And here's the beauty of it, is adoption is the context for ultimate change. Because adoption says, I'm going nowhere, and I will never leave you or forsake you, and you are my child. It is there that we find the safety, that we are, the safety to, to, to make mistakes. That the milk can pour, and you won't be rejected, and you won't be kicked out of the house. That is the beauty of adoption. Fifth and final blessing is you get a future inheritance. When you get adopted by God, you become an heir. It's interesting. All the other benefits, you could say, man, those are really great. But this is also, when Paul points to the fact that we are heirs, that we get an inheritance from God, Paul is saying that the best is yet to still to come when it comes to your adoption. Romans 8 talks about this, that right now we are only getting a taste, a foretaste of our adoption in God. And that one day all the world will be, and our relationship with God will be fully and finally as it's supposed to be. One pastor put it this way, that for the adopted child in the family of God, this life is the closest you'll ever get to hell. It only goes up from here. That's a beautiful truth. And what do you get if you get adopted by God? What do you get? What's your inheritance? The Psalms says, whom am I in heaven but you, O Lord? What do you get? What's your inheritance? You get the Father God for all of eternity. So just some concluding thoughts. I just want to call you to this. Two things. First is this. Do something. Not all of you are called to adopt or foster care. But James 1.27 doesn't stutter. God's commands there. Not all are called necessarily to take up this task. But all are called to, in some way, shape, or form to be engaging with the fatherless in this world. It is the call of the gospel And second, we ought to do this for God's glory, not for our own. If we get involved in orphan care for our glory, you're in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. Because very often the glory won't come to you, and you'll end up pretty frustrated. Every act we do, Matthew 25 says this, right? In the great annoying call in Matthew, 
What you do to the least of these, you have done unto me. You see, the orphan in the world has a face. And it's the face of a Galilean carpenter. What you do to the least of these, you do unto me. We do it for the glory of God. Let's go to the table. God's family dining room. Will you pray with me? Those who are coming up to serve, come this way as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sweet truth of your adoption of us as sons and daughters. God, I pray that we would, um, we would dive deeply into this truth. But Lord, we would not be a church that's driven by guilt. We would not be frustrated by that. But Lord, you would call us and woo us by revealing to us, by allowing us to experience our intimacy with you as a father and all the blessings that are there. So God, I thank you that this is a church that is about this issue. But Lord, I pray, I pray that you would sustain us and you would motivate us day after day that when we are exhausted, that we would run to you. That Lord, when we are as, as, as children who, are, who don't feel like the Father is close to us, that Lord, we would run back to the objective truth of your word that articulates to us that we are indeed your children. It says your legal status has been changed. Drive these truths home. May the penny drop in us so that we have joy in you, Jesus, and so that we spread the joy of Jesus to the broken and orphaned of this world. We ask in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.